Welcome to Conversations with Big Rich. This is an interview-style podcast. Those interviews are all involved in the off-road industry. Being involved, like all of my guests are, is a lifestyle, not just a job. I talk to competitive teams, racers, rock crawlers, business owners, employees, media, and private park owners, men and women who have found their way into this exciting and addictive lifestyle. We discuss their personal history, struggles, successes, and reboots. We dive into what drives them to stay active and off-road. We all hope to shed some light on how to find a path into this world we live and love and call off-road. Whether you're crawling the Red Rocks of Moab or hauling your toys to the trail, Maxxis has the tires you can trust for performance and durability. Four wheels or two. Maxxis tires are the choice of champions because they know that whether for work or play, for fun or competition, Maxxis tires deliver. Choose Maxxis. Dread victoriously. Have you seen Four Low Magazine yet? Four Low Magazine is a high-quality, well-written, four-wheel drive-focused magazine for the enthusiast market. If you still love the idea of a printed magazine, something to save and read at any time, Four Low is the magazine for you. Four Low cannot be found in stores, but you can have it delivered to your home or place of business. Visit fourlowmagazine.com to order your subscription today. On today's episode of Conversations with Big Rich, we have Larry Trim. Larry Trim is uh, from Trail Ready. That's where almost everybody's going to know him from. He's uh, an old-time rock-crawling addict, you might say. He uh, was one of the original competitors back in 2000s. And he got into desert racing and uh, left the the world of go slow to go fast. And uh, Larry, it's really good to have you on and uh, having this conversation with us. So thank you very much. I'm glad to be here, Rich, and I appreciate you inviting me. Yeah, so you know, it's uh, we've known each other a really long time. It seems um, I'd say it's got to be twenty two, twenty three plus years. But let's uh, let's start at the very beginning, and that's going back to your very beginning. Where were you born and raised? Well, I was born in Seattle, and I was raised in uh, Eastern Washington. When was that? That time you were born in. Seattle and then went to Eastern Washington. Was that like right after birth or? Well, it was, there was a gap. There was a little bit of a delay there. So I was born in 61 and, uh, I was an orphan, started out as an orphan for, uh, the first year or so, uh, before I, uh, a, a family, uh, decided that, uh, they needed to take me home. And that home ended up being in the Metow Valley of Eastern Washington, North. So it's, it's central Washington. Um, and I grew up in the Methow there in the, until I was 18 years old. Wow. Okay. That was, that was totally, I had no, no clue, no idea <laughs> that that was. Nobody's ever asked. Yeah. I mean, that was, uh, that's the first time I've gotten that, uh, that answer. So yeah. Um, that is awesome that, uh, that you were able to find, to find a family like that. I, I really, I, I just met this week. Well, I just found out this week. One of our drivers, um, their stepfather, they um, adopted seven children from the same family when they became orphans, I guess. And 
it was, uh, I was blown away by that, that they, that, that he and his wife, you know, took seven, seven children and from that family and, and actually a couple of more from another family. So it's very, I mean, it blew me away that, that, you know, that that happened. And now you mention it. It's, uh, it's awesome that, uh, there's people out there that do that. Yes, that that is awesome. And I think by and large, those are success stories. However, mine was different. Um, my family experience, uh, wasn't great as a matter of fact. And, uh, it really kind of leads into, um, my dirt addiction, uh, because growing up there, uh, I spent as much time as I could outside of what was kind of a chaotic home situation. Okay. Um, so, so the first say 18 years of my life was really about escape and, uh, escape for me was, uh, anything that I could get under me to put some distance between me and the house, uh, in what was a pretty cool place to grow up, uh, where we were surrounded by, uh, either state or federal land that was just, um, you know, had roads everywhere. And, uh, I've really been making as much, much dust as I can since. Yeah, it, it, that you have. So let's, uh, let's talk about some of those early years. Um, I, I don't want to dwell too much into the, into the negative, um, at all, but, you know, growing up in a, in a fairly rural area, um, what was it like um, for like getting to school or you know all of that? So we, uh, uh, I, I grew up in Methow proper, which was a town of forty-seven people, um, and I went to school in Pateras, which is on Highway ninety-seven, and you're familiar with that because of your time you spent in Goldendale. So right. we're, you know, a few hundred miles north on on ninety-seven. Um, and uh just uh, one paved road in my in, in in my entire youth going right through town and then everything else was dirt and i think um you know from the time i was 10 i was uh i was getting wheels under me um starting with a like a briggs and stratton mini bike and then just progressing from there as the as as i could as I could fund it <laughs> first with lawnmower money and then, uh, <laughs> uh, working in the local orchards, which I started when I was 13. And, uh, as, as I, as the pay went up and I, I think the pay was probably two bucks an hour back at the beginning. Um, uh, then the, the motorcycle, uh, sizes went up and then I was able to cover more ground. And, uh, you know, so if I wasn't, uh, I think I had my first like enduro bike at 13 and um, I actually uh, getting to school meant getting on a bus and riding for 30 minutes on the school bus into town. But uh, I found that if I uh, took the long way on my dirt bike, I could get there faster. So that used to be kind of a thing of mine when I was 13, 14, 15 was racing the, the school bus to school. <laughs> on, a four, on a 14 mile dirt road 14 mile dirt road that's awesome and uh hopefully you didn't crash too many times uh not early on but as i i think the next bike uh when i was 15 i got a tt500 yamaha and 
pretty much everybody knows that no 15-year-old should be riding one of those. <laughs> that big, heavy bike with about four inches of suspension. And I definitely got off that one the hard way a couple of times. <laughs> but you're still alive and all in one piece. I am. And uh, that experience... Uh, for better or worse, convinced me that my kids should not have dirt bikes until they were older because I had a few near-death experiences, for, <laughs> for sure. So then when you were in school, I would imagine school was all about getting through it and then getting out, or did you uh, play sports, or you know, was that even a, a available at a school, small school like that? Uh, we had yeah we had a pretty good they had pretty good sports programs there. Um, I played and and again I did I did everything I could to spend as little time as long as possible. So okay. I played uh, I played uh, uh, little league baseball for several years growing up. I played into high school baseball and then I and I also played basketball and and I, I really actually enjoyed um, playing. Sport. I wasn't a great athlete, but I enjoyed it a lot. Had good friends at school. Um, that that school, by the way, uh, you know, grades nine through twelve in high school was a total of eighty kids when I was there. So there was about twenty kids in each grade level. So it was very small. So you know, to uh, for basketball, I think we probably had um, you know eight or nine guys to to have a five man team. So everybody played. Everybody played, yep, for sure. That's awesome. I mean, it, it's that's good for for the opportunity to be able to play, you know, without go. I mean, sometimes you go to huge schools and there's just, you know, I remember my freshman year of high school, I think we had like 100 kids show up to play football. You know, and, and 100 kids, wow. they didn't even have enough uniforms for everybody. <laughs> you know, so it was... Uh, first couple of weeks of practice it was who didn't show up you know the next day somebody yeah. somebody else in line got the got their uniform and their gear yeah, yeah that be that would be tough that was totally different than our experience uh, in fact i think not too many years after i graduated and was gone um the school actually was forced to go to a i think whether they call it a b8 classification where they they couldn't uh, they couldn't feel they couldn't put eleven men on a football team, so they had so few people. So they 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 were I think they played eight man football after that. Right. So then, what was your interest in besides sports? Um, was there anything school wise that that captivated you? Uh, no, no, not a thing. Okay. My favorite, my favorite, uh, you know, the the uh, the class I appreciated the most was the shop class. So obviously we took the basics and then we also, because we were in an agriculture area, we're, we're compelled to take the anything related to like FHA or ag uh, agriculture classes. Um, I guess they thought we were all going to be apple inspectors or something someday. <laughs> um, but we did have a cool shop class. And, um, you know, so we learned to weld and do a little bit of fabrication and work on cars. Um, so that was, that was a, pretty much my favorite class. I, that's the one class I excelled in, in, in school. And I know you, you said you had motorcycles. Did you, uh, did you have a car at any point in that time? Oh yeah. I had lots of cars, Rich. What was your first one? <laughs> I think I had, I probably had something like 20 cars 
before I was 18 or 19. Wow. Um, because the, one, the ones that weren't like a primary project or something, I was I would buy anything I could find and flip it, you know, fix it up a little bit and flip it. Um, my first car was a 67 Kaiser Jeep Wagoneer. And, um, you know, I obviously put fat tires on it and, uh, did whatever I could, uh, could afford to do with that thing. Um, I remember when I first got it, I immediately took it to the kind of trails areas that I would be on my bike for the last, um, four or five years. And I got it kind of, uh, crossed up in a little bar ditch and had two wheels off the ground, which were spinning in the air and, uh, discovered you know, that I didn't really have a four wheel drive. (laughs) (laughs) So there was some disappointment there. And then later after that, of course, we learned how to weld up spider gears and things like that. We, by the way, there was no money in my, that that we, you know, dirt poor is a phrase, but we were definitely dirt poor. It was all dirt and there was no money. So, you know, everything came from hours in the orchards and I worked, uh, I worked every hour that I was either allowed to or, uh, you know, by the folks or uh, that, uh, that the local orchardist that I worked for would give me. And that meant every day after school and all weekend and then all summer. So always, uh, always working to try to get money for the next car or the next uh, improvement to the car. That's telling in what it did to make you who you are as a as a business owner and and being able to put in that kind of work ethic to make to make a business work yeah yeah definitely uh you know it definitely transitioned into um business when i when i started in in business and uh you know the same rule uh carried me through to i want to say the year 2000 just Put in the hours. Right. You know, some people look at business owners and wonder what the difference is, and the difference probably is in the hours. You know, they work uh, two or three times as many hours as somebody that's uh, just putting in forty hours a week. Right, so and everybody thinks that, that, that you're making that definitely got an early start. Yeah, and everybody thinks you're making thousands of dollars in those hours. And when you break all right, those hours out, you're just out, putting in more. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, when you're when you break all those hours out, it's. Uh, it's a lot less per hour than what people think. That's right. And you you know that as well as I do. Absolutely. So then in those early years, um, were you the, the only um, non-born family member in the family? Is that, was that the case or was it a family that had, uh, that had taken on in other kids? Uh, there was five of us that were adopted and there was uh probably 10 more like foster kids so it was and that just added to the chaos you know wow. it was always a lot of, yeah <laughs> yeah well trying too hard to help people i guess and it, and and they weren't uh, really well suited for it um okay in in every in every way i should i should say in some ways they were but in some ways they weren't so but yeah it was it was it, like i i you know, I don't really dwell on that period very right. much. I, I pretty much, uh, the minute I turned 18, I pretty much left and really didn't look back much. Um, but yeah, there was, there was, uh, I have two brothers and two sisters, which were pretty close. 
the the five of us are. Okay. And so that means you're still in contact with them and everything. Yep. Okay. Yep. Good. Okay. So then uh, what happened at that? Well, before we jump into those after 18 years, in a small school like that, I would imagine the there there was probably some pretty tight friendships, or was that not the case? Uh, there was a few for then. You know, there wasn't too many people to choose from. But right. yeah, I had a couple of good friends, uh, a, a couple of which I've stayed in touch with over the years. Um, but I, when I left, I went. I, I well, I, I actually went to to college for two years over here in Bellevue in Seattle. Um, but then after that, I I went to Oklahoma. And, um, because, uh, you know, coming, let's see, 81, 82, there was, I think the unemployment rate in Washington, uh, in 1981 was like 14%. And, uh, so when, you know, one thing that happened in high school, that's a highlight is that's where I, that's where I met my wife, Lois, and you know, Lois, yep. and, uh, she's been around ever since then. And, um, you know, after a couple of years of college, we decided to get married and that put I left college, went to Oklahoma to to uh, kind of start, put, you know, building the foundation of uh, some real finances so that we could take that next step. Well, that's um, kind of so what I was I didn't really, at. I kind of lost, yeah, I kind of lost touch with, with everybody from the past. And honestly, like I said, I, I kind of left that area and, and really didn't look back and just kind of move forward. Okay. And Lois was from the, was the same area then if she was the high school sweetheart. Okay. Yep, yep. She was there for a few years. She was from Everett, Washington, and uh, but she was over in Eastern Washington for a few years. We met there, stayed in touch after she moved back to Everett, and then uh, we got married in 1982. Okay. Nice. All right. Then um, you go to Bellevue for, for two years chasing an AA, or what were you, was there, did you have a goal in mind? Yeah, well, the goal, so the goal, uh, when I was in high school, I worked for um, a couple of different gentlemen. One had the apple orchard and uh, a successful orchard operation, actually. And then the other one was the, had the local uh, uh, service station, full service gas station. I worked in the orchard from 13 to about uh, 15 so three or four years, and then I worked for this uh, service station owner uh, another couple of years before before I went to college. And both of those guys were um, um, a real influence on me. And beyond their integrity and and those kind of uh, personality trait things, uh, I also really decided then that I was going to be self-employed. I was going to have my own business. So I went to uh, Bellevue Community College just for, to get a two, to get the two-year degree in, um, in uh, business management and that kind of thing. And so I focused on those kind of classes while I was there and I didn't get a degree. I, I left early. Um, but everything I learned there, obviously I put to work as soon as, uh, as soon as I was able. Okay. And then you at that point, after those those two years or close to two years, you jumped to Oklahoma. Was that chasing a job? And did Lois go with you, or did she follow later? She followed later, so we got engaged, uh, and uh, I moved out there. I think I left uh, 
left town with a credit card uh, and eighty dollars in my pocket in this uh, my nineteen eighty Chevy Love four by four that I <laughs> had bought <laughs> bought new, um, and I had an uncle. Actually, he was he was a kind of a second cousin is probably what he really was. Um, but he had, he was established. He was from uh, Washington state as well, but he had gone out there for work and he was established and uh, he invited me to come out and said I could crash at their house until I found something to do, which was by the way, the afternoon that I arrived, I think I rolled into, into uh, Yukon, Oklahoma, um, like a 6 a.m. And by, by dinner time, I already had one or two job offers. The what what happened is is that coming out of that oil embargo and all that, they were um, drilling like crazy uh, for gas production, and the the so if you were an able-bodied male walking down the street in Oklahoma, they would come out of their businesses and try to lure you into a job. That's how it worked there. I think the unemployment rate was like two and a half percent. Two and a half percent unemployment rate means that there's about two percent of the population that's working against their will. <laughs> so it was uh, it was fast and furious. Um, I got a job the same day. I think I traded it in for a better job in a week. And uh, within uh, I don't know within a week I was working on a on a uh, a makeover rig in the oil patch, meaning, you know, the drilling rig comes in, drills a hole, and then a smaller rig comes in and turns it into a production well. And I worked that work for um, a year and a half, probably, yeah, probably about a year and a half worked in the oil field. And um, I went from, uh, you know, maybe 450 an hour in the orchard or $5 an hour orchard to $13 an hour in 1981 in Oklahoma, um, you know, overnight. So that's that, that obviously there was a lot of people moving to Oklahoma. And then because of that, the, the construction industry, as far as like track houses just was on fire because there was no place for anybody to live. So they were building apartments and houses as fast as they could. Um, I worked in the oil field for a year and a half. And then I, uh, transitioned into construction because uh, it was more it was steady you know it was rain or shine year round uh, the the oil uh, the makeover rig could be a little bit spotty as far as staying busy so when I wasn't working that I was trying to do construction and eventually I got a chance to get into construction you know higher levels of uh, of the work and started kind of on a construction management. Okay. Path at that time. So, and that would have been like 1983. Okay, Yukon, Oklahoma. I know I've heard it. I've probably driven through it. But what part of the state is that in? So that is just a bedroom community of Oklahoma City, just okay. west of Oklahoma City. Um, That's why I know. Yeah. It. Okay. Yeah, it's right there. Pretty popular town. I think Garth Brooks was in high school when I lived there. Oh, huh. he's from Yukon, Oklahoma. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Did 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 he have a name then, or did you find no. that out later? No. Okay. That was later. Yeah. And about that time is when, uh, within that first year and a half, when you're in the oil field, is when Lois came out. Yep, she came out six months later. Uh, you know, I flew home to get married, and and uh, 
went back to work the next Monday, uh, and and that's how we started. And it was just the two of us, you know, by ourselves. We didn't know anybody out there really except for this distant uncle. So uh, that gave us a chance to really establish ourselves, you know, in our own relationship, and then uh, and uh, really focus on you know, whatever the future was going to be. Okay. So we worked. We worked hard. We were out there for three years. I didn't like Oklahoma at all. Um, coming from the Pacific Northwest, um, it was just a lot different. It was hot or cold, and it was you know extreme weather swings and um, you know big big bugs. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, so uh, we we worked really hard to kind of uh, get you know, a nest egg built up so we would have some options in front of us when, whenever the next opportunity came up, um, which was the fall of 84. Uh, I got a, a job back then. There was obviously no internet. So I had, uh, I think my, you know, my father-in-law who really wanted his daughter back in town, <laughs> as, meaning, meaning Everett Washington, he would send me the job. Um, he would mail me like the local, job listings <laughs> the one from, ads. from yeah from uh seattle everett area every week so we had that resource and then i about 1984 i i was i got a job working for a uh a uh, roofing and sheet metal company in uh everett area in 1984 and then we moved back to to everett okay was uh was lois working when she moved back to the West side uh, to finish school and they were in the Everett area, did, did she go on to college as well for a, a time or? She did. She did before we went to Oklahoma, she went to Northwest in Kirkland okay. for a while before we got married. Uh, and then in Oklahoma, she was, she worked in uh, kind of the, like a steakhouse restaurant, did some hospitality type stuff which she continued, I think, briefly when we got back to Everett, and then she got um, a job with the school district, local school district, and, and she was there for uh, the next five years or so until our first daughter came along. Okay. And uh, once you got back to Everett, did you still have the uh, the Chevy Love? Or did you no, uh, had you moved? I didn't keep cars up? very long in those days, Rich. It sounded like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I kind of went from you know a '67 Wagoneer when I was uh, 15. I got that, and uh, and by uh, by the time I was 17, I had a I had a '71 K5 Blazer, all of which got not babied, not beat, but really not babied. I took them out, and we, we you know we were. We were in the dirt, up in the woods, doing trails or uh, mud bogs or whatever, um, pretty consistently. And then, uh, and then, 1980, I got the, the Chevy Love 4x4, which was the right car to, you know, travel out to Oklahoma and, and that kind of a thing. Um, I actually uh, sold that to my brother while I was in Oklahoma, and I, I traded him uh, for a '55 Chevy Ooh. that. Uh, it was actually a pretty nice car that had a manual in it that Lois wouldn't or couldn't drive. We're still arguing about that. Uh, so, <laughs> so we traded that for for a car for her, and there was a series of, uh, you know, unfortunate cars that finally ended up in. Uh, I, I just thought I'm done playing with these cars that are losing money or not running. If I'm going to have 
you know, car like that. Let's get something that at least will hold its value. So she ended up um, out there in Oklahoma with a, a 76 Corvette. Hmm. And uh, that turned out to be a nice car. She liked it and it ran and it didn't lose money. And uh, so that kind of started a pattern of, uh, of a couple of core. I think we had three Corvettes uh, over the next probably 15 years that, that we had. Uh, well, it, it wasn't, it was not 15 years because, well, so, yeah, it, it was, it was, it was 15 years. There was, there was three Corvettes over 15 years. One of which we had after Rachel, my daughter, oldest was born. And, uh, that kind of put an end to all the, the Corvettes at that time when we started our family. Yeah. Because so, uh, you can't get two adults in a car seat. That's right. Into a Corvette unless you, <laughs> yeah. you know, you know, put screws through the, through the, through the fiberglass. <laughs> yeah. In the, the second Corvette was a, uh, uh, we came back to Washington. She got a Camaro or something, and so I I sold her '76 uh, Corvette, which, as you know, was a real horsepower monster with 180 horsepower. Right. And uh, I bought a Corvette for me, which was a '71 LT1 Roadster, and uh, that was a nice car. And I kept that up until '89. Uh, after five years of working in construction, uh, for others in 89 is when I started my first business. And, uh, I kind of, I sold the Corvette to fund the, uh, that kind of startup. So that was the end of the Corvettes. I think one, you know, I had one later after that was, was like an autocross Corvette, uh, much later, but, uh, but yeah, we, we, uh, yeah, 88, my daughter was born 89. I started my business. And after that, it was, it got pretty boring for a while. As far as cars go, we were really focused on family and, and career. And, uh, we were, we were, we had some rental houses, so we were focused on, you know, real estate, fixing up houses and stuff. And, uh, it, it, you know, all the automotive and the, you know, the hot rods and everything got put on hold for the next 15 years or so. Right. So you, you get married in 81, you're in Oklahoma, you stay there for approximately three years, you come back to Washington, to Everett area. And then within, so in five years later, you're starting your business or thereabout, but you already had rental properties. That's pretty uh, darn good. Yeah. Well, it was, it's not like it is today. That's for sure. Right. Yeah. I had, uh, yeah, we had some rental properties and, uh, you know, owned our own home. And all the, all by the time I started my business in 89, so I was, what, 28 years old. And, uh, you know, we made a decision when we got married because we got married really young. You know, I think uh, I was 20, Lois was 19, and we decided we wouldn't start a family until we, until we were established in a career and we owned our own home. So we put all those things in place first. And I think, you know, when you don't have three kids running around, it's easier to focus on that kind of stuff. And, right. and I think, I think that worked out well. Um, yeah. So my daughter was not only was my, I, I was kind of established in my, in my trade, but um, within a year of my daughter being born, we had her started our own business too. So it was, you know, it was good times for sure. And we, and like I said, we weren't playing back then. We, we were buckled down. I worked, you know, I really worked six days a week for 20 years and, um, that's just kind of what it took. Right. 
Well, that's good. The uh, So what was the business, the first business you started? Uh, so I started, I was working for a roofing and sheet metal company, and I started the same roofing and sheet metal, um, which I, within two years, I, we, you know, we stopped doing kind of general construction and general roofing, and we, we, we focused on architectural sheet metal. So really just became it all all sheet metal roofing, siding, um, that kind of thing. And uh, that was 89. And then by 91, we had started another business that was designed to be just a fabrication shop. And I, I, I started it as a separate business because I got an opportunity to, um, to actually make uh, sheet metal products for the people that I was competing against in construction. So I wanted to have a different name (laughs) and that, that company is, is what is RSI, which has been my, my primary business since, uh, you know, 89 was the contracting, but by 91, I'd started RSI, which is the business I still have today. Okay. And so that you're with that business, you're still doing fab work and, and metal work for, for other companies. Correct. Yeah, we just uh, we have a facility, twenty thousand square feet, where we make kind of high end architectural sheet metal products and uh, sell to a pretty select group of customers. Um, it's all negotiated work now. We don't bid anything, and it's you know after what thirty years, it's it's uh, we we've got it figured out pretty well. And and I actually I have a, bar- a partner in that business. He he's the general manager. Uh, my role here is pretty limited now as I'm kind of stepping away and doing more travel and stuff. Okay. So that one's been here since 91. Wow. Very good. So then you're, uh, that explains like the bumper business to me. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> that makes that, that, that whole tie in makes, makes more sense then. So then when did, when did in all this, did you get back into off road? So I got back into off-road about, um, we, we were, you know, business was good and uh, started to have a little bit of time to, you know, dream about getting getting into Jeeps again. Really, it was Jeeps when I started, my very first car. And uh, I think by I think I had a couple of Jeeps in the meantime that I just were daily drivers. Um, so 90, about 92, uh, one of my employees had a 81 CJ7. Um, that he was trying to unload. And I looked at that and thought, yeah, I could make something out of that thing. So I bought this CJ7. And over the next two years, I I made it prime. You know, I, I put everything into it. All The stuff that you did in the 80s, like two bumpers. And, you know, I put a winch on it and we painted it. And uh, uh, we made in our shop, we cut out and made all the diamond plate body armor stuff that was popular back then um in lift kit tires wheels new top and uh, so we started going on taking it to all the local trails um with my very young kids i'd have three kids in that little tiny back seat all wearing bicycle helmets so they because <laughs> they were you know crashing into each other back there um but we had a great time with that thing um for you know five or six years uh we bought a you may know that I'm a motorhome traveler. Right. <laughs> I've always had motorhomes. I think we bought our first motorhome about the same time. Um, 
about 94 or actually yeah it was a it was uh my work truck we put a siding camper on it a big 12-foot camper got a tow bar and we drug that jeep everywhere and um, that was our first rv um everywhere kind of in the pacific northwest and all the local trails and did that all the way up until um 99 i guess um we, you know, I had lockers in it and, uh, we would go out with all the local friends and guys that showed up at the trails. And honestly, the Jeep was performed so well that, uh, it was kind of getting a little boring by, um, after five years of that, you know, cause it would just go anywhere and it wasn't as fun as it was with open diffs and, and a manual transmission. <laughs> but, uh, we took that everywhere. We, we drove it all the way down to, uh, uh, like Taos, New Mexico to do a Jeep Jamboree one time and then hit all the, all those national parks on the way back and had some really great trips with the uh, dragging that Jeep around. And the, and so that the was kind of young. my return to Jeeping. Yeah. When the right. kids were young. Yep. That's awesome. So then you, you were doing your own body armor with like diamond plate and you said and stuff, did you guys, did you guys turn that into a business as well? At well, that that's, point? that really, that's where trail ready started. Okay. Um, you know, we had this shop, but pretty elaborate. We could make a lot of stuff. And really the only thing we were making then was, was the diamond plate, uh, body armor pieces, which was, everybody was doing those. Um, but in 97, I wanted to get off the local trails and do some destination wheeling, um, Jeep Jamborees are the ones that I knew of from kind of reading magazines and stuff. And of course, everything was in print back then. And we'd see all these stories about the Rubicon and Fordyce and Moab, uh, which, you know, we did go to Moab um, one time during that time. But in 97, I registered trailready.com. And that's when that part of this thing started. Uh, I decided I needed another revenue stream to fund destination jeeping and uh and and then my you know by this time i had a business partner in that business and uh, he had a jeep pretty well pretty nice jeep too so so we started making parts we bought some some uh ads in some print magazines and um you know started seeing what we could sell to and then you know we'd put stickers to put our logo on the jeep and we'd go to these go to these jeep jamborees and see if we could uh you know, make some sales and really kind of, it was a tax scheme too, you know, with the, <laughs> we could expense all of our travel as a, as a marketing, uh, expense. And, and that's, that's kind of what the idea behind trail ready was. It was always about funding, um, motorsports and, and these destination wheeling adventures that we wanted to do. So that's, that's how trail ready started in 97 was for that reason. And I did that for, you know, a couple of years and, and did some good stuff. And then all of a sudden uh, I saw something in 99 about competition, rock crawling sports in the rough. I think it was right. Yep. Absolutely. And so I'm like, okay, I got this Jeep. It goes anywhere I want to go. And then nobody else that I'm wheeling with has really got their setup the same way. And so we're limited. Why don't we go, you know, why don't we go compete? And uh, so we did some more work to that, 81 CJ7 uh, in the winter of 99 and signed up for the the first um, ARCA rock crawl in Phoenix. Okay. 
And uh, so you were down there in Phoenix. That was that was on the Woodpecker Trails, Upper and Lower. Right. And uh, you were in the the CJ seven. In the CJ seven, and you know we uh, we built some bumpers for it, and uh, the winter of ninety nine. You know, I I knew I needed bead locks because all those guys in the pictures had them. I had no, I'd never seen one. I'd never seen the inside of one, but I, I knew, I knew what that function was accomplishing. So I just cut some stuff out on the plasma cutter or whatever we had back then. I'm not sure we had a plasma cutter in 1999, but uh, anyway, we cut up some wheels, put some bead locks on them, and uh, put some bumpers on the Jeep and put our name on the side and and showed up and ran that whole series um, in, uh, in yeah 2000, ran the whole year with the Jeep set up that way and had a great time. So you came out to, to Cedar City then, that yep. first big event there. That's, uh, that's where I got really hooked into it. I was there at the Phoenix event. Um, right. And then uh, we helped uh, Ranch get there in coming out to Cedar City and and uh, helped get all the judges and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I remember that event well too because a, a, a whole bunch of my whole family came to that one, and my business partner Brent, his he had family come to that one too. I remember that. Yeah, that was, yeah, and we did uh, we did ARCA for uh, in that Jeep in in two thousand and two thousand one, two years in that Jeep. Okay. And uh, uh, kind of the next the next step for Trail Ready then was uh, um, Brent uh, came up with, and I don't know if he was doodling on the computer or what, but uh, we, after that season of 2000, he made the first aluminum rock ring, which was kind of an iconic ring that we did um, in 2000 and and we had those on the Jeep in time for a couple of fall events after the, I think the season was largely over. Cause I ran the whole year with the steel beadlock wheels that we kind of handmade. Um, but then we showed up, but we had an event in the Northwest called the uh, Northwest rock crawl that a local guy put on. And we had those wheels on there for that. And then we went up to the Island rock crawl on Vancouver Island, had them there. We did, we did little, those were our first two shows as well, okay. where we set up a display. And, uh, and then of course, 2001 showed up to ARCA again with those new aluminum rings on that were bolted to a steel wheel. And, uh, it, it just went crazy. Everybody was, um, everybody was asking for that wheel. And then as you know, the, the print media, uh, declared this, the fastest growing motorsport in the USA. And it was all over the pages and, and, and trail ready just got on that wave and rode it. And, uh, and it just the wheel business really took off, and we were making bumpers at the same time, but it was the wheels that really were kind of the exciting product for us. Right. Well, yeah, because the bumpers are only on on the tow vehicles, truly. You know, right. Or, yeah. Or we had some trail we vehicle. had some Jeep products too, but right. really the the you know we we had a pretty fast line of uh, growing line of truck winch bumpers, and along with the wheels, these two kind of different different lines and. Um, and they, they, Trail Ready it was supposed to be just funding our hobby, but it was taking a life of its own for sure in uh, 2000, 2001, 2002, and during those times. I, I just looked at the website today, um, 
your website and I went, oh, Dodge, because, well, I had that 91 and a half Dodge. And uh, lo and behold, there was my front, the front end of my truck, the bumper and the, the lights and the winch and the and the Dodge grill. And I was still, like, on, the, still on there. It's still on the website. <laughs> That's awesome. And do you still have that truck? I do not. I so wish okay. I did. I so wish I did. Yeah. No, I had to. Uh, cool. I had to get something with more seating. Yep. Yep. So we ended up with a sixty-five hundred Top Kick four-door. But uh, yeah, that was. Uh, I still wish I had that truck, though. That truck was definitely a classic. Yeah, and now that you mention it, I kind of remember that. I remember that, that yeah. you had that on there, and 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 to this day, Trail Ready is the only company that really makes. Um, still makes winch bumpers for the early generation trucks of all the different brands. Well, that's good to hear. So everybody out there, if you're looking for a good bumper for your early model Chevy Ford Dodge, you know, check out Trail Ready because they got some great stuff. I mean, that bumper of mine took some hits. I know that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Being out at the racetracks all the time. So then where did... uh, where did the autocross and I know you did some other some other things besides rock crawling. How about sharing some of that? Well, back, during that time, um, um, really, rock, I focused on rock crawling from 2000 to 2005. I had an autocross Corvette, but I didn't really play with that much. It was it was it sat in the garage. Um, I think I took it out a couple of times, but I didn't even compete with it. So it was just some, it was a car of opportunity. I think it, I think it actually came on a trailer I really wanted and it came with it. So it sat in my garage <laughs> for five years, you know, <laughs> I, I had a few things like that. In fact, I still do a garage full of, full of vehicles that I have a plan for that doesn't necessarily always come into fruition, but, uh, uh, I like but that. No, I focused on I, I, I focused trailer. on the rock well, you got to buy the car too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's pretty much how it went. It was a package deal. And you had to take both. But uh, no, I focused on the rock crawling up until '05. Um, during that time, you know, we we uh, let's see, I, I had the CJ for 2000, 2001, and then I built my first um, two chassis buggy uh, in for the 2002 season. And I ran that one from 2000. It was a, uh, you know, two-wheel steer um, car. And I ran that one in 2002 and 2003 when I decided that there's no way I could compete unless I had a a moon buggy with four-wheel steering. And I actually sold the the, uh, – 2002 car i sold it to a guy named mel wade might have heard of him oh yes um he was just starting evolution off-road so i got to meet him like at the very beginning so that would have been that would have been 2003 and uh kind of used that money to build i i i uh, charlie melchner had this new car that you probably remember it was skunk works fab that thing looked like a lamborghini it was so low and uh so cool and so i got a hold of the guy that built that which was skunkworks fab dave kimner yep. from i think pennsylvania and uh and i i ordered a chassis from him but then uh ranch at arca he they changed some rules about i think they saw charlie's car and they said that's too low your helmet's too close to the ceiling 
um, they changed the rules. So my car looked a little bit different than his, but it was a, it was a great little four wheel steer moon buggy. And uh, we had that one for 2004, five and six. And, uh, and then, um, 2006, uh, super crawl was my last event doing rock crawling. So I did it from 2000 to 2006. And then what did that you was go a do? Great time. Then, so 2006. Actually, I'll, I'll tell you what happened. Is I'm one of these dust to glory uh, inspired <laughs> people. So Which 2005 was filmed in 2003 came out in 2005, correct. right? Right. And somebody invited me to the premiere. I think it happened while I was down there for like Off Road Expo or something. Of course, we were doing all the shows by then. And uh, I went and saw the premiere in the theater, which is the best way to see it, of course. And I'm like, uh, this is where we need to go because we had about 45% of the market in rock crawling. And, and of course, that meant that our market share in just trail Jeeps in general was was gr- growing really fast. I mean, we're talking, you know, 20 to 30% growth year over year right. in the wheel segment. And uh, so I was looking for a new market anyway. And uh, I'm like, I need to go do that. So I, um, I, I think I was, I was sponsored by Mickey Thompson tires at the time. And they put me in touch with a guy that had a desert truck that was looking for wheels to go with his Mickey Thompson tires. And this fella, it had a 7,200 truck and, uh, you know, we had a few conversations and I told him I would, uh, not only would I give him some wheels, but I would keep him in wheels if he let me drive that truck. And he agreed. So I became a sponsor of a 7,200 desert truck that in 2006 was racing in snore and I showed up and put some miles on it and rode with him and kind of got a feel for, for desert racing in 2006. And, uh, and then we took that truck and started racing full time in 2007 and best in the desert. Um, and that was when I got in that, that was the beginning of desert racing for me was 06, 07. And, uh, well, you know, rock crawling, I was a midfield guy you know, 15th place out of 55 cars. There were so many cars back then. Right. Um, I don't, I don't know that I ever cracked the top 10. I just didn't have the seat time in that kind of terrain, you know, cause up here in the Northwest, all we have is, is slimy roots in the woods. And, um, it's, it's difficult to get an understanding of what, you, what, what those cars can do on slick rock and, and granite and stuff like that. Um, but, desert racing suited me. Uh, we won our first race and, uh, I drove that 7,200 truck, uh, through the middle of 2009 and we had a 26% winning percentage nice. on that truck. So yeah, it, it, it was a whole different ball game. Um, one of the problems with rock crawling for me being all the way up in Seattle area was I would drive, especially as the sport progressed and it became, you know, instead of, instead of a 14 minute uh, time limit for a course, it, it was four minutes and the courses became kind of a point and shoot type thing. Not a, not so much a rock crawling thing at that time with Arca and uh, U-Rock. Um, so I would drive 24 hours for 24 minutes of seat time. And to me, the ratio was terrible. Right. When I got in a desert truck, I would drive that same 24 hours 
um, but I might have 11 hours of seat time, <laughs> more than I wanted, you know, <laughs> uh, two, 250 or 300 miles in a, in a desert truck. And it, anybody wants out for the most part. It's about, that's, a, you know, when the fatigue, the kind of the mental, mental fatigue starts to set in. Um, so yeah, it was a whole different experience and it was way, uh, uh, more, you know, enjoyable for me to be in a desert truck and do an endurance racing as opposed to the rock crawling. So it was a great, great transition. Um, and I drove that truck, like I said, until the middle of 2009. And then after that, after that, I went into a shop in Kingman, Arizona, where we, where we did all of our prep. I had a little shop there. I've had, I've had a race shop down in Kingman or Henderson ever since, um, to get a part made for that truck. And the guy that owned that machine shop was Tracy Rubio, who had, uh, recently built a trophy truck that was, he was a truck builder and he built himself a trophy truck. Um, and he was looking for some help to get that truck into, uh, Vegas, Torino, the three day event in 2009. And, um, you know, we had a conversation and I told him what it cost me to race the sponsor and drive the 7,200 truck. And he said, you know, for that money, you could be driving this truck. And I said, done. <laughs> <laughs> so, so starting with Vegas Torino 2009, I sponsored the number 18 trophy truck with Tracy Rubio. And I drove that truck for a couple of years. And that was a whole, that was a whole different experience. And uh, I immediately was, uh, scheming on how in the world does a guy like me get a trophy truck? Um, and, uh, but yeah, that lit a fire for sure. And of course, you know, we were in the middle of a bad recession in 2009, 2010. Yes, we were <laughs> banking thing. And, uh, so Tracy decided in 2000, mid, mid 2010, he was going to park that truck. He couldn't, he needed to focus on business or, or, or the fact or the lack of business is probably a better word for it. Um, so that truck got parked in 2010 and, um, uh, the same, the same race, I should say the last race in the 7,200 before I got into that trophy truck with Tracy Rubio, another trophy truck guy had a transmission fire and in, in the, uh, Las Vegas 250 or something, it was the best in the desert race. And, uh, while I was trying to figure out what my next move was in 2010, I found out that that individual would be willing to sell what was a Hulk at the time, you know, from this transmission fire for $10,000, everything. And so we took a look at it. This, by this time I had kind of a racing partner, John Koth, who is still with me today. We do everything together as far as desert racing. He preps the trucks and, and then, and, you know, I've kind of pay the bills and we, we race together. Um, he found out about this truck. We went and looked at it and we kind of cataloged it and figured out there was about a hundred thousand dollars in parts there and bought it for $10,000. And that was the way a guy like me could have a trophy truck. <laughs> right. <laughs> it was like, uh, make a down payment and make payments for 10 for, for, uh, four years while you put it together. And, uh, and that's what we did. So start 2010, we bought that trophy truck and kind of settled in to, uh, to really outfitting it a hundred percent spared, no expense, wiring, harness, tin work, uh, you know, drivetrain, everything, everything was brand new in that truck. And, and, uh, 
we worked on that for the next four years. And then finally, we were able to race it there in what, 2014 or 15? Yeah, 15. 15. Yep. 2015 was our first race. And that in the meantime, I found a pro truck. I wasn't going to sit around for four years, Rich. right? <laughs> of course. In the meantime, I found a pro truck. And so we raced, uh, we raced in the pro truck class 2011, 2012. Um, 2010, I got invited to race the Baja 1000 with the Ford factory EcoBoost team. They took, it was a two truck team, uh, where they put EcoBoost motors in F-150s. One of them was actually the, the first Raptor race truck. They took that motor out and put a EcoBoost in it. Um, that was Mike McCarthy. And then, uh, um, you know, Greg Fouts right. managed that thing. And I rode with Randy Merritt in, in his truck, and we had a, a pretty crazy Baja 1000 experience there for 2010. And then 2011 and 12, we raced the pro truck. And um, 2013, we started really getting into the final push on the trophy truck and buying motors and transmissions and stuff that was expensive. So other racing slowed down a little bit. In 13, I raced Nora for the first time, and I've never missed one since and uh because that's more of a stage I, race um, yeah nora is a stage race where you it's five days and you race a couple of speed stages every day with some liaison stages in between um typically about 1300 miles total to get from ensenada down to the cabo area and that is my favorite race by the way that's awesome it's on a bucket list for me one of these days it's it's it barely rises to that level. Just show up, and I'll make sure you have a good time. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah, it's my favorite race. So started that in thirteen. Um, right in there, we sold the pro truck, and like I said, we were on the final push on the trophy truck. Two thousand fourteen is the one year since in 22 years that I did not race one race, 2014, just because we were focusing on finishing the trophy truck. Okay. And, um, and then we raced it all the way till COVID hit pretty much is, you know, all the best in the desert. Uh, we typically would show up at rage at the river with that truck and, uh, and then race it all the way through 19. And, uh, it's been parked since while we, when when COVID came along and races were being canceled, we needed to make an improvement to the front end of that truck. And so we cut the whole front end off and had a whole new front end designed, which is just being finished right now. Okay. And in the meantime, trail ready or RS, RSI, correct? RSI. Yep. Yeah. RSI. Well, RSI. So let me, let's back up just a little bit okay. since you bring that up. RSI is it's always been my primary business. It's the it's the business that I draw salary on and and you know supports my family. Uh, RSI started Trail Ready, so right. Trail Ready was born out of the resources of RSI and eventually spun off onto its own company. Um, during that time, we also uh, there's been th two or three other brands that we've started at RSI spun them off or sold them. One was Road Armor, if anybody knows who right. Road Armor is. Okay. That was a company that was going into bankruptcy, and we acquired it in like 2000 when we were um, we were making Jeep bumpers at the time, and that gave us a shortcut into kind of the light truck bumper market. 
Um, so we kind of got that established and sold it in about 2002. Um, I think that, I think that one's still going today. And, um, and then, uh, of course, you know, trail ready was really two identities, trail ready bumpers and TR wheels. So, uh, by 2007, we realized that we weren't really making money on the bumpers and, and we needed to focus on the wheels because that was, uh, that was the, the business that was thriving. And we sold the bumper, the trail ready bumper business to some, uh, gentlemen down in Oregon. Um, and they are, they are making lots of bumpers, trail ready bumpers, buck stop bumpers, Renell bumpers, all these, all these are pretty common brands that are all under one roof today. Okay. Um, so, um, yeah, that's kind of how that progressed. So we just then we were able to from 2007 on just focus on the wheels, which is now its own company. So Trail Ready is its own company, and I'm the sole owner of that up through um, last year. And then I, of course, I remain a partner in RSI with with Brent. And the the in is RSI then more like a job shop for other. Like you said, for you got started because you were doing, you know, construction parts. Yes, yes, it is a job shop. Um, we do custom fabrication of of what we call, you know, it's architectural metal, but more closely defined as a building envelope. So it's all building trades, and it's essentially the outside of a building. Um, but the kind of work we do is uh, skyscraper exteriors. Uh, which are largely plate panel systems, you know, aluminum plate, where it's uh, designed in CAD and it has relief cuts in it, it's folded up, welded, usually post-painted with a high-performance finish system. Um, we do, as part of a building envelope, we do curtain wall framing systems where they're erected on a building and then the glass is put in on site. So we do that kind of metal exteriors. Um, we, you know, common jobs for us are hospitals, airports, uh, stadiums, that kind of thing. And we've been okay. doing that for, uh, you know, 25 years or 30 years now, wow. 91. So, you know, 30, 31 years now, time flies. Absolutely. Yep. Well, that's, that's interesting. That's, uh, the love of the motorsports was, uh, was an offshoot then, or it, RSI created the ability to be able to get it to take the motorsports. Yeah. Yeah. And I told you earlier that we started that revenue stream to fund destination motorsports, really jeeping at the beginning. Uh, but it has, um, it has blossomed. Obviously it's grown uh, generally double digits and it's allowed our, our uh, motorsports aspirations to, to grow with it. So it, it's funded all the way from uh, taking the Jeep on the Jeep Jamboree to, um, you know, putting a trophy truck in the Mint 400. And uh, and as most of your listeners know, that is not cheap. No. I tell people that you don't even walk too close to that truck because it'll suck the money right out of your wallet. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we've been very fortunate to uh, to be able to, to do that. And, and, and there's been times where I've had to hit the reset button where, you know, I started trail ready to fund my own motorsports, uh, dreams. 
and uh, sometimes you know we'll we'll get involved with helping other teams with wheels or something, and suddenly I'll I'll realize that I, I'm missing a race because because I uh, I'm uh, you know giving product support to other teams to the level that now I have to stay home and manage that, or there's not enough money left for me to go, and so then I have to be like, okay, I didn't I didn't start this business to help you know, those guys, I started it to, to fund my own racing. And if there's, you know, if there's still an opportunity to, to support the other teams and we've done a lot of that, then that's, that's awesome. But I got to get in the dirt. So, um, sometimes I have to hit the reset button and make sure that I'm, you know, putting my own truck together and uh, not sitting on the sidelines watching my friends race. So now that we're basically out of the COVID, When's the uh, trophy truck going to make its reappearance? Well, it should be done in time for, we're, you know, we're we're going to race it in the Snore Series now. There's so much of a shakeup in all these organizations. Oh, yes, there is. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, I was a I was pretty good friends with Casey folks. Um, I actually, the shop that I have where we do all of our prep in Henderson, I rent from him and now from, you know, his estate. But uh, he and I were, I just wanted to support him. And so we did best in the desert exclusively. Um, but that's kind of changed. That dynamic has changed. And, uh, my, my racing partner, John and his family, they're pretty close tied in with snore. Um, snore is fits the budget a little bit better. It also kind of fits my truck a little bit better. My truck is a pretty good sprint truck. Um, it's mid engine. It carries one spare, um, so it's well, it's, it's, it's better suited for these, kind of shorter races, um, as opposed to say, you know, Vegas Reno, or certainly we don't have the budget for Baja, but, uh, went the trophy truck, but, uh, so we're going to race in snore and I'm hoping it's done in time for the midnight special coming up next month. Oh, good. So okay. It's really close. And, uh, what's on the, uh, what's on the horizon? What's the future look like for Larry and, uh, racing at least? Well, racing, Primarily because you may or may not know that I actually sold the wheel line oh. uh, in 2000, in uh, 2021. Um, the same fellas that bought the bumper line from us in 07 had always had a desire to buy the whole thing and kind of rejoin the two, um, the, you know, the, the trail ready and the TR back together. Uh, and they have thrived in the bumper business and in fact have kind of gone into the wheel business too because they make these uh single rear wheel conversion kits for F550s and Ram 5500s and trucks like that so they're making um with my involvement they're making super single wheels for those applications nice and uh you know I turned 60 last year and decided that I needed to um start paying attention to my wife a little bit more and her desire to to broaden our travel uh, horizons. I've always been tied pretty close to the office and she'd like to, you know, get overseas a little bit when things open back up. So they were ready to buy it and we were ready to sell it. And, uh, and, and that's, that took place in April of 21. My involvement with trail ready now is uh, I'm still doing some marketing. Um, I still do a little bit of their social media and, uh, we do the events, the off-road events. I'm obligated to do the off-road 
shows through 2023, um, which was easy because I enjoy those. I, that's my favorite part of the business is going to the shows or going to the races. Right. So I'm not showing up in an office every day anymore. Uh, I am kind of focusing on getting my uh, keeping. I should say keeping my race cars uh, prepped and ready to go. You know, we have. We have a couple of Nora cars. Uh, we have the, the 69 Rambler that people are familiar with that I raced down to Cabo three times. And uh, I just uh, last year got a, you know, I'm a Jeep guy. In fact, I'm a Grand Cherokee guy. And I found a, a 93 Grand Cherokee that won the 93 Baja 1000. That It was built by Kurt LeDuc for Donovy Jeep, which was a factory Jeep racing team back in the nineties. Right. Um, we just did the, the 2022 Nora 1000 in that Jeep and had an absolute blast with that thing. It goes a lot faster than the Rambler, by the way. So <laughs> the smiles, the smiles just get bigger. Right. Um, so, you know, we're doing the vintage racing. Uh, we've got the trophy truck that'll be back on track this year. And, uh, I just have this weird desire to chase down a couple more kind of iconic, ZJ Grand Cherokees that were raced in the 90s. Um, there's two that I know of that are sitting in barns, one in Northern California and one in Australia. And uh, I'm I'm trying to talk those owners out of those Jeeps right now and kind of finish my ZJ collection. So that's kind of what I'm, I'm working on right now. Um, you know, other than that, we're... Um, building a new prep shop in Henderson. That's a project I'm working on right now. I've been renting forever and I bought a piece of property to put a prep shop on and, um, yeah, we're just going to travel. Excellent. That's, that's the plan. Yeah. And what, what kind of locations are on the list for traveling? For me, uh, for me, it's a racetrack and, you know, if I, and, and for Lois, it's way beyond that. Um, it's Europe, um, Australia, things like that. Uh, I just do my best to try to talk her into having us arrive during a race. Um, <laughs> you know, we wanted to do uh, a bucket list item for me is Dakar. Um, it's way out of my price range, but they have a new class at Dakar called the Classic Class, where uh, people are bringing old old Dakar type vehicles or rally rate vehicles from, you know, the 70s 80s 90s and showing up to do that uh the price is i think the it's a little bit more affordable if you do it that way um if that race ever comes back to south america i definitely will try to be ready to go with one of these cars um and go down and do that so yeah you want to go if lois wants to go to chile then we need to go during the dakar rally (laughs) Uh, if she wants to go to um you know, the Mediterranean or, or the French Riviera, I want to be there when there's a Formula One race going on or something like that. And that'll, that'll interest me for sure. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's the, the kind of thing we want to do. I'd like to race five times a year, six times a year minimum. And, um, I'm going to try to do that as much as I can. Awesome. If just a, a word of wisdom, if you go to Australia, make sure you have like and it's going to cut into your racing schedule, but you need like three to six months. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the way to do it, isn't it? Do you go down there and rent a little RV and just travel to wherever you want to go? I don't know. I've talked to a few people that have, that have done it. So we'll, we'll, we did 18 days 
We did 18 yeah. days and it was not near enough. We were traveling way too, too much, too quickly to really absorb everything and uh, mm-hmm. trying to do, you know, the route that we wanted to do. And, and we didn't even come close. We had to turn, you know, and head back um, to Sydney at that point. But, uh, you know, we rented a, uh, a Land Rover with a rooftop tent and a pullout kitchen and everything. And all we had to do was bring our clothes and buy food. I mean, they had the sleeping yeah. bags, pillows, everything, you know, and uh, it was, it was awesome. That sounds like the way to do it for sure. I think I'm do it. I'll, I'll get in touch with some friends over there, buy, have them, you know, purchase, I'll purchase a ute, you know, and uh, have it outfitted and then come in and then either sell it afterwards or keep it around and try to get, you know, friends in the U.S. to rent it when they go over there. Something like that. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Sounds great. And we're looking forward to uh, to doing something like that for sure. And how old are your kids now? My kids are 27, 30, and 33. And uh, grandkids? Uh, I got two granddaughters, 6 and 11, that are awesome. And they live close by. They're only, they're only 45 minutes away, so we get to see them a lot. That's excellent. And uh yep. Great. It sounds like uh like you're on the path that you want to be on. Yeah. I would I would have to say so. We've been pretty blessed. Um you know, we've we're planners and and uh you know, I think when you're when I'm I'm a person who likes to plan way ahead and uh, even when things don't go according to plan, the farther ahead that you've you've you know that you've kind of tried to lay things out, the more control you have over, over managing the, the hiccups, you know? So, uh, um, so far so good. It's been, uh, you know, 25 years with trail ready has been, uh, a really great experience. And, uh, I'm excited for the guys that have it now as they try to take it in to, uh, you know, whether it's a new direction or, um, or just a you know a, a better way to do things than we were now. I th- I think that it's going to be it's going to be in good hands for sure. These guys are not racing fanatics like I was, so I think trail ready is going to morph a little bit. Um, they are really really into overland, um, which is probably kind of a you know a activity that we'll get more involved in now too. That we're not having to show up to work every day um, and. I mean, it's it's a very fast growing segment of off road right now is the whole overland thing. Absolutely. And so I think they're really really kind of keying on that at the right time, and I think that's going to be good for trail ready. Yeah. So I, we've we've enjoyed it for 25 years, and uh, we're kind of excited to see what they what they do with it, and uh, uh, hopefully there's enough money left over for us to race as much as we want to. Excellent. The uh, the overlanding, you're 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 absolutely correct on that. It is a big market. And, uh, people want experiences now, you know, it's, uh, the racing is, is cool, but you know, not everybody can go out and race or rock crawl or be competitive, but, uh, everybody can, you know, find a campsite. Yep. So for sure, you know, and, and so many of those people want to be taken out, you know, and that's the direction I, I hope to go in. So that's, uh. That's that's the plan there too. Cool. Yes, awesome. So, is there anything that we've uh, that we've missed 
that we haven't talked about? Oh, there's plenty to talk about, but nothing nothing more significant than uh, I think you covered it pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> so let's uh, let's let's throw some names out there. That uh, who is the one driver back in the early days of rock crawling, or maybe not just one, but who was it that you looked at and said, "Man, that guy's got talent." Well, there's two people: Ken Shoop. Okay. Uh, I think blew some minds early on. I mean, I remember one time at, uh, at Farmington that there was a climb that was really giving people trouble and he crawled up that thing. And then just to, uh, just to piss everybody off, he looked around, smiled, and then he backed halfway down it and then crawled up it again. <laughs> and other people couldn't get up with momentum. And I'm not sure that I'm not sure if that was the first when the stickies first came out or what. But that guy had some stuff figured out. Um, and he was he was a uh, put on quite a show. And then of course uh, Tracy Jordan, who um, you know we supported with wheels for pretty much his entire career. Uh, that guy was very talented with the different cars that he had as well. So as far as drivers, uh, just on the rock crawling, those two guys are the standouts in my memory. But another thing that, that was, um, that made an impression on me was my very first, you know, sanctioned professional competition event was also, uh, was Phoenix in 2000. It was also the first, rock crawl event for Walker Evans and Walker Evans wasn't always the best guy on rocks, but that guy, if you spent any time with him, you learned about what a competitive nature looked like. And, uh, it was a little bit frightening sometimes when he put his helmet on, um, (laughs) because it changed his personality changed. And that's why he's so successful in every, uh, discipline of racing he's done because you know, when, when he puts his helmet on, nothing matters except winning. And, uh, and he was a great guy to talk to, you know, on the sidelines when we were waiting for our turn. But I learned some, a few things talking to him about, about, uh, you know, competing in the mindset that you need to have when you're, you know, when you're trying to win, whether it's that course or that race or, even in business, I'm sure he's probably not much different, but, uh, and he's been very successful there too. So those are, you know, those are some things I remember, um, about personalities in rock crawling. And what about on the, uh, desert race side? Well, desert race, side, I was, I, I did so much better desert racing that, uh, I didn't pay attention to anybody else. I just tried to beat them. And we had, you know, we had, uh, you know, for, for having such a tiny budget, we had a lot of success as a comparison early on, especially I knew when I got into a trophy truck, that was going to change. But in 7,200, we were running in the top three, anytime we were running and uh, got our share of wins. Um, the very first trophy truck race was the 2009, uh, Vegas, the long Ray, which was a three day race. And, uh, you know, I think there was probably 25 trophy trucks entered in that race. Nothing like today, much smaller numbers than today. But at the end of day two, we were the fourth truck on the road. And compared to, you know, uh, the Wyricks and, uh, you know, uh, 
some of the other guys, Jesse Jones was up there. We had no money compared to those guys, you know, right. <laughs> we were on such a tight budget and, uh, you know, with a little ragtag of volunteers and not all the right stuff to, to be, you know, great in the pits, but we were fourth on the road out of, uh, out of 25 trucks on after two thirds of that race before the motor expired. And, um, you know, we, we did, we, we were trying to win every time we got in a desert car. So, uh, in that pro truck, we had a pro truck that did not have all the upgrades that they had just put through, meaning, you know, everybody else had a bigger tires, bigger motor, a different shock package. And we didn't have any of that stuff because it was just a budget thing we were doing. And we were second pretty much every race to Troy Vest who had all the best stuff on his truck. So, um, you know, we were desert racing, it suited me very well. And, uh, you know, nowadays it's, uh, there's some great people doing that in, in their trucks are, you know, $750,000 and up. And, uh, you know, our goal with our truck, our little $10,000 truck is, is, is to see if we can crack the top 10 and we've done it in qualifying uh, a couple of times. I think we've raced that thing in best in the desert about 15 times. And, uh, we've, we've, you know, we've, We've qualified well a few times, and we've had some uh, finishes where we surprised ourselves and, you know, got 12th in Vegas to Reno, and I think we got a ninth in a, in a, a shorter race. So, so uh, yeah, it's it's a great, great way to, to race and to challenge yourself, and, and uh, we just like going fast now. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I want to say, Larry, thank you so much for, for coming on board and uh, – spending some time and, and discussing your life with us. Um, I learned a lot and that's always a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. So glad to be on the show, Rich. It's been, uh, it's been, been a pleasure for sure. And it's been, uh, it's been nice knowing you for these past 22 years or so. I, I honestly, I don't remember the very first time I probably met you, but, uh, you know, it was definitely back in say, you know, 2000, 2001. Absolutely. No yep. yep. Well, I, I, like I said, thank you for coming on board and, uh, when I'm ready to uh, to spend some time and go down to Nora, I'll give you a call. Absolutely. We'll be waiting. All right. Sounds good. Thank you. Okay. Goodbye. Thank Bye-bye. you, Rich. Well, that's another episode of Conversations with Big Rich. I'd like to thank you all for listening. If you could do us a favor and uh, leave us a review on any podcast service that you happen to be listening on, or send us an email or a text message or a Facebook message, and let me know uh, any ideas that you have, or if there's anybody that you have that you think would be a great guest, please forward the contact information to me so that we can uh, try to get them on. And always remember, live life to the fullest. Enjoying life is a must. Follow your dreams and live life with all the gusto you can. Thank you.